Well, good morning and welcome to worship here at Trinity South Naperville and Pastor Mike, if we've never had the opportunity to meet before. And you are entering into the second week now of our Imitation Generosity series, as we talked about a couple of minutes ago. We are exploring the heart of God and the way to try to connect with any concept, whether it be religious or not, is to look at its opposite. So what we decided to do for this series is take a look at imitation generosity and try to unpack godly generosity in the way that God intended for us to live generous lives. So what I'd ask you to do this morning is prayerfully enter into the idea with me uh, that we are to explore the heart of Jesus. And when we explore the heart of Jesus, it informs our hearts as to how generosity in our life is really supposed to work. So I'd invite you to join me in prayer really quick here. Heavenly Father, just open up our hearts to you. God, as we're exploring generosity and what it means to be a giving people beyond the concept of just giving money, because a lot of times the church gets tagged with that uh, accusation, the church is after my money. God, we know that's not true, and we know that in the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God is about hearts. You are after our hearts, and the way our hearts express themselves is through giving, and that's in various forms. And we're going to talk about that today, God, but we ask for your voice. We ask for perspective. We ask for wisdom. We ask for comfort. We ask for relief, and we ask for direction and guidance from you. In your name we pray. Together we say amen and amen. If you think about how generous God is, um, it's not hard to explore the idea that God is generous himself. And not only does he give us the houses we live in and the families that we enjoy, he gives us our health, he gives us our food, he gives us all the things that we have and share together. And as, uh, as we grow in faith and as we grow in maturity, we begin to understand that even though we have the opportunity to work and to make money and to spend that money on the things that we have, as we mature and grow in faith, we begin to understand that it is God who gives us that ability to work. Amen. He's the one who gives us not only the ability, but the opportunity to work. And then when we receive financial blessings from that or material blessings or family blessings from that, we're able to turn and learn about his heart of generosity and how to turn and share those good things with other people. In fact, it says this in Romans chapter eight, verse 28. And we know that in all things. Now, how many things does it say there, guys? In all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. And further down in the passage, it says, He who did not spare his own son, Jesus, but gave him up for us, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us how many things? All things. And so we begin to see God is the giver of all things. Now, does God give us sin and does God give us trouble? No, those things we bring on ourselves. And God sometimes allow those, allows those things into our lives in order to draw us closer to him, right? But God is the giver of all good things, especially and perfectly in his son Jesus up on the cross. Think about what God gave in Jesus, not only on the cross, to remove your sins as far as the east is from the west, the scripture says, right? But all we simply do is trust in Jesus, so we don't have to have Jesus and then earn our way into heaven. 
We simply have Jesus and trust in him and all those sins are gone, which means that we have a father God who is both provider and comforter and leader. And that is merely at faith, at the asking in the name of Jesus. We love that. But somewhere along the way in the history of the church, somehow guilt entered the picture. Now, let me throw a proposition at you real quick here, okay? If you trust and believe in Jesus with all your heart, and you know that Christ died for you on the cross, and you fall into sin, and you fall into trouble, or you have the opportunity to grow, and some preacher says, hey, you really need to be doing this. There is this temptation to fall into guilt. The idea is this, that if I'm not doing this godly behavior, this Jesus behavior over here, like being generous that I need to feel guilty. But that is a fallacy, that's wrong, that's an error. If you trust in Jesus with everything you are and you're in his kingdom and you sin or you fall short, uh, the difference is that we feel godly sorrow in that. And then we are motivated to change and to follow Jesus. Does this sound about right to you, sound familiar? If you take on guilt, with the concept of generosity, as a follower of Jesus, you, you're, you're misaligned, you're misinformed with the glory of God, about the glory of God. You are not meant for a life of guilt. So when it comes to uh, preachers and pastors and church leaders leading you down the road of generosity, you are relieved of guilt. There's no guilt around you. There's no guilt for you. You are not to live a guilty life because Jesus took all that away. Now, you may feel some motivation in your heart, some godly sorrow. That's okay. That's what motivates us to seek out the leadership of Jesus and to follow him. But something you need to hear clearly this morning, when we talk about giving, what we're not doing is laying a foundation of guilt for you. We don't want you to feel guilty because you are not guilty. Amen? We declare and we know by what the scripture has said, we are no longer guilty. So let's get the guilt out of the picture and let's deal with the generosity in the heart of God as he intended it. Now, I want to share with you a, a happenstance in the life of Jesus. And in Jesus, nothing was lucky. He just simply went into situations that God had ordained and set up so they could be captured by the disciples and then disseminated to us 2,000 years later. I want to share with you this uh, interchange that happened with a teacher of the law in Luke chapter 10. Jesus was talking with someone. He says, on one occasion, an expert in the law... Someone who had been trained kind of like a pastor, but of the Jewish faith in their law, right? Um, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. They were still trying Jesus out back then to see if he was really the Messiah. They were feeling threatened by him. And so they wanted to test him. A teacher, this, uh, this teacher of the law, expert of the law said, What must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? And he replied, How do you read it? So Jesus asks the expert in the law back, how do you read it? Now, let's stop for a second. Let's take Theology 101 here. We understand and know that there is nothing we can do to earn our place in heaven, right? We know that the one who's done that is who? Is Jesus himself. Now, this guy's asking Jesus, what do I need to do in order to earn my way? Why is that? Because back then in that culture, they believed that they needed to perform religiously in order to be in the favor of God and get to heaven when they died. Does that make sense? So he's asking that along those lines. But Jesus answers this. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. 
You've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do all this and you will live. Now, let's stop again. If I had been the expert in the law and I had just said that to Jesus, I would have in my mind and in my heart taken inventory of all the ways that I had done what? Failed to do all that, right? And then Jesus turns and says, do all that and live. Now, what is Jesus doing? Is he just pouring salt on the wound or, or digging his hand into the wound and, and, and making it hurt worse or irritating it? In a way, he's doing that. He's kind of playing with the concept with this guy. Because what the guy is now faced with doing is saving face. He's just told Jesus everything that needed to happen in order for him to be righteous. And Jesus has turned and given him a correct answer. The truth of the matter is this. In order to earn your way into heaven, you have to be perfect. You have to love the Lord your God with all these different ways. And you have to perfectly love your neighbor as yourself. 110,000% all the time without failure. Now throw your hand up in the room or online if you perfectly keep all of God's law, including loving your neighbor as yourself. Not a single one of us, right? But that's the good news. The good news is because we can't, now we have a savior. You see, the Savior comes and delivers us from that perfection, right? This guy hasn't gotten that yet. He's trying to save face in front of a crowd. So what does Jesus do? This guy wanted to justify himself, verse 29. So we asked Jesus, now here's the key question, who is my neighbor? So he doesn't deal with the subject matter directly as to whether or not he kept all those laws. Do you see this? What's happening in this guy's heart? He's playing a game with the truth. And he's diverting himself around the truth about what's in his heart to play games about asking about what qualifies a neighbor. Who is the person that I need to serve? And then Jesus tells the famous story. Now you may have heard this story before. You may have heard it 10 times or 100 times before. But think of this in terms now of generosity. Jesus tells this story about a man who was traveling from Jerusalem where he would have been worshiping down to Jericho. Perhaps he lived in Jericho. And on this same road, which is about 16 miles or so from Jerusalem to Jericho, Jerusalem is where the temple was. Jericho was perhaps where the guy was living or visiting. There was also a group of priests and Levites that would frequent this road. Because the priests and Levites would serve where? at the temple, and then perhaps they lived in Jericho, so they're going down this road, right? So what happens to the first guy is that he falls into some trouble. Some robbers catch him and beat him up, and in fact, they not only take the money and stuff that he had on him, they strip him and take all his clothes and leave him basically lying in the middle of the desert on a road, naked and beat up and defenseless. Jesus goes on and tell the story, tells the story of how a priest comes by. Now, a priest would have served at the temple. A priest would have been kind of like an associate pastor, like a site pastor, okay? The priest was serving at the temple and coming by, and the priest would have been under the compulsion of the law to serve the people of Israel and to give of himself a tenth of all he took. Now, the priest would do this. The priest would receive money from Israel because they were serving as their livelihood at the temple, so the Bible says they didn't have an inheritance of their own. So they would receive tithe money from Israel. And then the priests and Levites were supposed to turn and tithe that money back onto the high priest. 
So the priests back then would have been under compulsion to give 10% of their income. So they are giving 10% of their income. They're serving up at the Temple Mount. They're serving in the temple, serving Israel with worship services and such, doing all the things that they were supposed to do. And yet as they pass by a man who was beaten and left naked on the side of the road from Jerusalem to Jericho, what did the priest do? Jesus says, as the story goes, the priest walked on by, didn't even look at the person. Likewise, a Levite comes along. A Levite's kind of like a worship leader. A Levite comes along. A Levite would have also been at the temple, would have also been serving, would have also been giving 10% of his income. At least by law, he was supposed to do that, right? And yet when he saw the man on the side of the road, what did the Levite do? The story goes, he passed him by, didn't even look at him. And then the story concludes, wraps up with this twist. It's kind of a turning of the knife that Jesus has. The story says that Jesus has this Samaritan came by. Now, a Samaritan was a person that Israelites did not interact with. They were not supposed to because they were unclean. Yet a Samaritan comes by and sees a Jew lying on the side of the road. And instead of thinking about the rules that he should follow, his heart is stirred. He sees another humanoid on the side of the road, dying naked, and he decides to pick him up, pour oil on his wounds, it's kind of like the medicine of the day, and take him to an inn and pay for his stay there until he could be healed. And then Jesus looks at the expert in the law and says, you go and do likewise. That is what it means to take care of your neighbor. So whether the expert in the law was trying to get around the point or not, he got the point right between the eyes, didn't he? Whether it's a Samaritan or not, whether it's a clean person or not, or an unclean person or not, whether it's somebody you like or not, or know or not, whether it's somebody you expect or not, if somebody comes along that has a need and you have the resources to share with that person in need, God is calling you to share those resources. And Jesus puts it no more clearly than that. Even an expert in the law can find the truth and find direction and find a, a place to go with himself for that. Now, this is people he's talking to that would have been tithing 10% of their income by compulsion. Now, what does that mean? It means they were under the law to give a ten, tenth of their stuff back. So how does a person get stuck in that rut where they are following the guilt or following the, the structure of the law, but they're not feeling or sensing or believing in their heart the need for generosity? What happens to the best of us? It happens to all of us. In fact, it's the tool of the enemy to teach us not to be generous by keeping our hearts bound up and kept captive to something else. In fact, the Bible says this, the words of Jesus, Matthew chapter six, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus talks about this idea that wherever we have placed our stuff, our heart follows. 
It's kind of backwards of what we're used to. But we look back at the Samaritan on the side of the road and we realize, yeah, he's got some resources to share with this person who's been beat up. But the most important part of the story for the Samaritan is not the oil he poured on the wounds. It is not the money he paid the innkeeper. It is not the cloak he took off his own back and put over the man on the road. It's not the fact that he picked the man up himself and put him on his donkey and took, it to the, took him to the end. It was the heart that God had placed in him first. And notice what I said. It is the heart that God placed in him first. And then his life expressed that heart in the coins that were paid, in the donkey that was shared, in the cloak that was given, in the oil that was poured. You see, the heart comes first, not the compulsion of living under a law. You see how sometimes we get it backwards? And God takes us right where we are. Uh, Jesus dealt with the teachers of the law in another episode like this. I wanted to share this with you. Matthew 23. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices. We talked about this, right? Mint, dill, and cumin. But you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. These are not things that you can package in hand to somebody. These are things that start on the inside of you and are expressed in the things that we give and that we share. He said, you should have practiced the latter, the heart of the matter, without neglecting the former, without giving up what you're sharing materially with other people already. In other words, seek the heart of the matter first. Ask yourself, where am I on the spectrum of the heart of generosity. You blind guides, Jesus goes on and says in verse 24, you strain out a gnat but swallow a camel. Here in the United States, we might say we miss the forest for the what? For the trees. Like the point of the thing is different. So I'm gonna share with you some biblical ideas, some ideas from Jesus on what generosity looks like. And remember, in the beginning, we have put away guilt so when you see these opposites, what I don't want you to do is feel guilt, okay? Are we agreed on that? You are not guilty. You are free. What we're going to explain now and share with you is how Jesus creates generosity. Jesus does this. When Jesus finds that you are gifted and created in order to serve and to share your time and to do things for someone who is in need, he takes your absence from that situation and gradually through the power of the spirit turns it into your presence. So if there's somebody in your life who needs you and you've been absent from that person's life for whatever reason, you're not guilty of that because of Jesus. Amen. But Christ doesn't leave you that way. He brings you into the life of a person who has a need and gradually turns you into a servant, someone who is present, someone who is there more than they ever have been before. It takes someone to change from indifference into emotional support. Taking the time to sit and have a conversation with somebody face to face where you understand what that person needs and with an ear that is empathetic instead of judgmental or instead of indifferent, you actually lean in 
tell me more about what you're going through. Tell me more about that pain. Tell me more about that experience. Tell me more. And can I pray for you? When we teach the 20 and 30 second prayer technique, that is simply meant to give us an opportunity to interact with someone's story, to lean in and care. When we move from stinginess into generosity with our finances, we learn that by default we come into the world hanging on to what we perceive as ours. But then it is God who teaches us that what we have is kind of like what we're managing, not what we're owning. Think about the difference between a situation where you own something and where you manage something. Do you treat those two things differently? Should you? They should be treated the same, right? Whether you own them or not. But when we think about the things that we have, including our finances, we think about them in terms of 100% God's, and I'm simply here to manage the portion in life that he's given me. It brings a whole new perspective, and it helps us to turn loose to be less stingy and to move toward a spectrum on the other side of the spectrum of giving of our finances. That may be where you might have given something at church during Christmas and Easter last year, and maybe next year you decide to give something quarterly. And then the following year you decide to give something monthly. And then the following year you decide to give 1%. And then the following year you decide to give 2%. You see how that moves across time? And again, there's no guilt wherever we are. The guilt is gone, amen? This is simply us following Jesus into reality. And then lastly, moving from unfriendliness into hospitality means that there is a place carved out in our space in life, in our home, where someone else who needs Christ has an opportunity to be in that space with us and experience Christ. Think about it. Do you have a space in your home that you would feel comfortable entertaining people in. If you don't, maybe you need to clean up the house a little bit. <laughs> and I'm talking right back at me, okay? The only time my house gets clean is when people are coming over, which is why we have small groups and meetings in our house all the time. Otherwise, the Curtis house would be a haven for all kinds of bacterial infestation. So we have people over so we can clean and mop and organize. Think about it, though. The plan of God is to plan. The plan of God for you is to plan. How can I spend a little more time with somebody who needs me? How can I give a little bit more financially in a church situation that needs me, which all of them are? How can I create a little bit more space in my home to be able to entertain people on purpose? The question doesn't get answered unless we plan for that. We plan for it. Then the question becomes this after that. Will we let God create that space? Some people call it margin. Will we let God create that space in our homes, in our finances, in our schedules, in our hearts? Will we let God create that space in our hearts so that it may be used by him in order to bring someone else into his grace? Now, everybody sitting in this room knows this just by the sound of my voice, and it's by the testimony of scripture, not the fact that Mike said it, okay? If you trust in Jesus, your sins are what? Forgiven. If you trust in Jesus, your sins are forgiven. Why would we not want to share that with somebody who doesn't get that yet? 
The way that happens is through generosity. The way that happens is when space in our checkbooks open up, is when space in our homes open up, it's when space in our schedules open up. That's probably the number one toughest challenge for the room today is to schedule. Uh, when I was a kid, a long time ago, we were about a third as busy as we are now with our kids. Think about your own schedule. Would you have the time in your schedule to sit down and have coffee with somebody who needs you? Think about this next week. Is there a two hour block? Yeah, I said two hours. Is there a two hour block in your life that you could give away without any potential hope of immediate return? Is that in your life? If not, is there a way to create that in your life? Yes, and it's not under compulsion of the law. It's not to simply do what is written in the law. It is following the heart of Jesus who demonstrates how to do that for us in the first place, isn't it? Think about this. Here's a scripture that kind of goes in front of and wraps around a scripture I shared with you during the story of the Good Samaritan. Matthew 6, starting in verse 19, says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. Remember, contrasting and looking at the opposite, right? And then Jesus drops this bomb here. He says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now look at the opposite of this to get it. Really let it sink in. The opposite would be wherever your heart is, there your treasure will follow. That is what the world around you tries to teach you to do with yourself. If your heart says it, then do it. But Jesus teaches the opposite. Jesus turns his concept upside down and he says, wherever you place your treasure, there your heart will follow. He leads with the placement of the schedule, the money, the space, the time. He leads with us trusting him to do that work, not because we're under the law or guilty, but because he's the one leading the way doing it. Now, let me ask you a question. Did Jesus give? What did he give? Everything. For us, he leads us into a gradual progression of movement into an everything life. A life that is given incomplete, given completely. And in the kingdom of God, when you lose your life, what happens? You get it. Do you understand where this is going? It's like this. I don't know if you're a cat person or a dog person. But if you've ever wanted to get a kitten before, and if you're seeing the picture of the kitten I have up today, why would you not want to get a kitten, right? The kitten is just as cute as it can be, right? It is standing ready to tear every shred of fabric out of the ends of your couch and your curtains. It is a vicious domestic uh, enemy, but as cute as a button, right? <laughs> When you get a kitten for the first time, if you just bring a kitten into your house and you haven't prepared for it, what happens? Utter chaos, right? But when you're going to get a new kitten, when you're going to get a new kitten, you buy a litter box, hopefully. 
You buy a litter box and fresh litter. You buy cat food. You buy a little place for your cat to sleep. Otherwise, your cat's going to sleep where? On you, <laughs> right? You prepare a place. You make the space. You spend the money. You create the time to help the kitten find the litter box. Trust me, you need to do that. But if you don't do all that preparation, what's the kitten going to do? Tear your house apart. So prepare. And when you prepare and execute, then that kitten comes into your home, comes into your life, and comes into your heart. You've created a place for it. Now, maybe you're a dog person. We have cats in our house, but uh, maybe you like dogs instead. <laughs> Same thing works for dogs. I grew up with dogs. If you bring a puppy home and you have not prepared for the puppy, what are you in for? The ride of your life. You better just give up all your material stuff, right? Because it's going to get chewed, swallowed, and spat back out again right in your lap, right? But if you create a place for that puppy, that puppy becomes a part of your family. It's the same exact way with generosity. Look, we can make generosity our enemy, and it is guilt that wants us to do that. Or generosity can light a fire under us that brings us to life. The fire of the Holy Spirit. When we create time in our schedules, when we create space in our finances, when we create the opportunity in our homes, God claims all those things. And in fact, he even brings the opportunity to share those things with us when we create them in worship. When we create those things on purpose, worshiping him and following Jesus, he then finds people to bring to us. It's like we don't even have to find them. They find us. That's the best part. God makes it happen. And we simply worship him through it and for it. It is God who gives today as well as he gave on the cross. And he will give in you and through you into the life of someone who needs his gift of Jesus. We now know, based on what we've learned, that this is how it happens. We follow him in plan and set aside those resources and God will fill them with people who need him. Does this make sense? This is how he works it out in you and in me. And remember, there is no guilt. You are guilt-free because of Jesus. Even if you doubt that there is a Jesus, I'm going to say it again. Even if you doubt that there is a Jesus, not was, but is, he still died for you anyway. And you are released of guilt when you place your faith in him and trust in him. Yeah, it's that simple. And what he calls us to live in is that truth and the glory of that truth through generosity. Do you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you so much for giving. And thank you so much for taking the demonization of generosity away from us this morning. Thank you for taking the bad reputation giving has received by the world and removing it. So that we know you are the one who has given everything. And we simply follow you in that. 
God inspiring us the opportunity to create time in our schedules, inspiring us the opportunity to create a space in our finances, inspiring us to create margin in our homes, a special room or place set aside that we may entertain and listen and invite others back. God create that margin, that space in us as we see the opportunity. And then as you will, bring people into that space. We trust you for this, God, and we're excited about it and look forward to it because it's a game changer. We love you and we thank you for being so generous to us. In your name we pray and together we say amen and amen.